0: Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a cookbook author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're sharing tips about how to make friends as an adult, fighting burnout, or learning the best investment strategies. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if any of those topics interest you, scroll back in the archive so that you can listen. Today, we are getting into focus and attention, which I feel like we don't talk about enough. Being able to focus on the right things is critical to basically every component of our lives. I think we talk about it a lot in the realm of productivity and like getting stuff done at work, but in truth, focusing on the right stuff is the foundation of happy relationships, of enjoying vacations and moments of pleasure, and even of eliminating fears and negative thoughts that preoccupy us by training our focus to move away from them. My guest today is Dr. Amishi Jha, a professor of psychology at the University of Miami. She serves as the director of contemplative neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative, which she co-founded in 2010. She received her PhD from the University of California, Davis, and postdoctoral training at the Brain Imaging and Analysis Center at Duke University. Dr. Jha's work has been featured at NATO, the World Economic Forum, and the Pentagon, and she's been featured in the New York Times, NPR, Time, Forbes, and more. Her TED Talk, How to Train Your Wandering Mind has been viewed more than 5 million times and her brilliant new book, Peak Mind, Find Your Focus, Own Your Attention, Invest 12 Minutes a Day is available wherever books are sold. I really wanted this conversation to get into all facets of focus and attention and Dr. Jha was so helpful at explaining everything in an easy to understand way and giving super actionable tips to make real changes. We talk about why it's so hard for us to focus, why you don't need to detox from your phone to get your focus back and what to do instead, how to train your attention away from things causing you distress or anxiety like the news or phobias, the one specific daily practice that research shows improves your focus the most, a pragmatic technique to be a better listener even if you're listening to somebody who's not talking about something that's of that much interest or importance to you. You know, we have all been there in those conversations, but here's how you can be a better listener even in those scenarios. How to use science to keep other people's attention better. The best instant practice to replenish your focus and attention and the practices that do not work at all. How to prep for a moment or event that you want to be hyper-focused for, like a big meeting or a speech, and so much more. Dr. John, I would love to hear your thoughts, what's resonating for you, what you're trying. So definitely screenshot and tag us on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody and she is at Amishi P. Ja. And if you have someone in your life who would benefit from this episode, who would love to be able to focus their attention and feel so much more spacious and happier for it, please send them the link to this episode. They'll love it. I will appreciate it. It is wonderful all around. If you're new here, do not forget to subscribe. I have amazing episodes coming up, including eight things that get better as you get older, a new edition of Healthy Cooking Secrets, and busting myths about exercising and good posture. So trust me, you do not want to miss them. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. All right, without further ado, let's hack our focus and get our attention back. All right, Dr. Jha, I'm so excited to talk about focus today. This is a real problem that I have personally. I feel like I'm always being pulled in a million different directions. So for me and for everybody listening, I appreciate you being here.
1: Oh, so excited to be here with you.
0: Let's start off. What are some of the culprits that are making it so hard for us to focus our attention? Why is our attention being pulled in all of these different directions? The first thing to say is that our attention is, it feels like
1: it fails us, but it's actually a success story of human evolution. The fact that we can pay attention is such a useful thing, but in many ways, the way it functions and the success it has is part of the reason we're feeling so much pain as it relates to our attention. And that seems like a little bit of a strange thing to say. What do you mean it works? It's working and that's why we're having problems. Well, let's think about how attention was designed, like what its purpose was. And the purpose was to essentially, like most things that human beings can do today, advantage survival, allow us to function well and live what does that mean? That means that we should be able to use that term focus. We should be able to direct our focus. So wherever it is that we direct our focus essentially means that just at the brain level, as a brain scientist, I'll tell you what it's doing is it's saying whatever it is that right now is within the focus of my conscious experience, it's going to be better processed by the brain. I'm going to use most of the brain now to deal with that information. And that is one of the reasons we think attention developed, because the brain ended up running into this problem that there's so much stuff in the world, it can't fully get all the information. So let's subsample. Let's take some information and get use the entirety of the brain to process it. And then we'll kind of sample bit by bit. And so the metaphor I like to use often for this process is that attention is like a flashlight. It's like we can direct it. It's narrow. It's limited. And everything that's within that flashlight's focus, we get this nice, crisp access to Let's go back to your question, like, why does it feel like we just can't focus on anything? Well, the other thing to remember, we can certainly hold the flashlight and point it. That is part of what attention allows us to do. And it's useful to do that, right? So if you were outside in the dark and try to, you know, this happens to me when I'm trying to walk my dog at night. A flashlight's really handy. So you don't step in anything you don't want to step into and you know you're on your path and we know where we're directing it. But if I heard a weird sound while I was walking, for sure, I would take that flashlight. It would go to wherever I thought I heard the sound from. So not only can we direct it, but it can get pulled. And what kind of things pull our attention? Again, things that would be evolutionarily advantageous for our survival. Things that are threatening. So the sound that I heard, you know, it's like, that's weird. Things that are novel. Again, never heard that before. You know, oh, that's a peacock. Never thought a peacock would sound like that. Whatever it is. Things that are self-related. So if I heard even something that sounded like my name, I would, of course, want to orient to it. And the list goes on and on. But all these things you can tell, fearful, threatening, novel, all these kinds of qualities are things that if we don't pay attention to them, it might have cost us to ignore them. So attention will always prioritize those kinds of things. But What that means is if you're walking down the street and you have your flashlight pointed somewhere and those kind of sounds or strange occurrences keep happening, not you're not going to have a lot of success keeping the attentional flashlight pointed where you want. It's going to get yanked around. And so I've been using kind of this metaphor of attention as really for the external environment, but those threatening, fearful, self-related, potentially even sad things that can pull my attention don't even have to happen in the external environment. They can happen. Well, of course they can happen like on my phone, for example, if I see something, but it can happen in my mind. So just the idea that something could be threatening is going to pull my flashlight. Point is, that's what I mean when I say the thing that makes it so strong And helpful for us is also the thing that now feels like a pain point, because we are getting pulled and yanked like crazy now through so many different means, like our social media use or our technology use, but also our own mind and the kind of worries and catastrophizing or ruminating that can occur.
0: Well, and I think with the social media use, we often think of our lack of focus as like a very modern problem. We're like, oh, we're bombarded by technology and social media. But I found that monk story in your book to be. Really interesting. I thought it was really interesting that this has been a perpetual human problem, and it's not just necessarily of the modern age. So, can you speak to that for a second?
1: I agree with you. So, let's say let's just talk about what that story was. So, when we think, like you said, of our problems with attention, usually we'll point to our phone and say, "Bad. If I could just throw this in the river, never deal with it again, my life would be my attention would come back, and I'd be full of calm and and focus." That's where I thought this story for, of medieval monks was really kind of telling. Because what it describes is essentially back in medieval times, monks who had decided to devote their life to God, move into monasteries, leave their sort of typical family life, were in these moments that they describe as attention not behaving properly. And they would say things like, I'm supposed to be devoting my mind to prayer and God and all I'm thinking about is lunch. <laughs> And you're like, they haven't mean, same. Exactly. exactly. It's true. It's true. Some things don't change. But what I love about that is that it really pinpoints this topic I just touched on a moment ago, which is distractions don't need to be external. They can be entirely internal. And that's what the monks were describing, that even in the absence of of any kind of stimulation, their own minds were not behaving properly and, and were pulling them in all sorts of directions that they couldn't really escape their mind. Most of us have to sort of contend with that part as well is that the mind is not something we can just leave to the side. It's always with us. And figuring out a different way to relate to our mind is going to probably help us deal with the internal distractibility that we experience and improve our sense of focus.
0: And we're definitely going to get into a lot of those methods. But just to be abundantly clear, what do you think our relationship with like technology or social media needs to be? Do you think we need to be setting boundaries? doing social media, detoxes, how much is removing that distraction versus learning to deal with it important in your mind?
1: The reality is we cannot remove our interfacing with technology. And most of us rely on it. Like you might even say, okay, I'm not gonna use my phone all weekend, but now you wanna go for a hike somewhere and you gotta get to this place. You're gonna need your map. So now all of a sudden you're in this position where it's not gonna go away. I mean, you could try to use an actual map, a physical map, not not your phone, but most of us aren't gonna do that. You might even not even be able to find such a map these days. Who knows? But the point is, I think a approach that is more reasonable and that is probably going to be more useful for us is doing something a little bit counterintuitive, not letting go of the technology, but starting to... The first step would be just observing how we are engaging with it, really paying attention to how we are using our phones. And... Setting very clear intentions every time we engage with our technology. This can actually then lead to strategies and approaches that might work for you individually. But this piece of like the urge to just say, I'm never going to deal with my phone, or, I'm going to spend this whole weekend, it's just probably not going to work. But also, it's not going to solve the problem, which is really more of a problem of not being aware of how we are engaging with technology. So, I mean, I guess I'm getting into the solutions part of the conversation, but I would say it's very, very important to keep in mind that. We can take better care of paying attention, how we use technology and doing so is going to be so worth it because it'll give us better ways to moment by moment, be able to maneuver with the pull of our technology. So that would be like one answer. But the other answer is that I think that for sure, the way social media companies work, the model of our attention is the commodity. And the goal of social media apps, for example, is to keep us on there as long as possible is not good. I, I don't think it's, an, we, we think of it as sort of like, well, of course they have to do things that way. No, even even companies that are available right now, like think about subscription-based services, they don't have that requirement that the more you stay on, the more money they make. You've already paid up front. You're paying for the quality of the engagement. That takes away the everything they'd put in to keep you there for longer. I think that there has to be a real look at how a lot of these very money-making Engines of companies are functioning and whether that's really something we want to tolerate. Because if the way they make their money is by mining our attention and they know how to do that, they know how to yank our flashlight. We're up against a pretty big competitor because it's not just that they know the general features, fearful, exciting, self related, novel, all that stuff to keep us engaged. But they know for us individually, they can curate content because we're giving them all the information about how to get our attention based on what we click, what we linger on, what we click off of, we swipe away. All that stuff is just feeding the intelligence that says, oh, give this person this particular thing. I think there's multiple layers to answering your question, but just saying no to technology is probably not a good way to approach this whole space.
0: I think the idea with doing something like a digital detox is that, A lack of focus begets a lack of focus and in a certain amount of focus begets a certain amount of focus. If you put your phone away for three days, something about how your brain transforms in those three days will make it way easier for you to focus even when you're back on your phone three days later. Is that true? Is that the more we don't focus, the more we won't focus, if that makes sense? Not necessarily, but I I would even question the first thing about like
1: when we're not on our phone we are focused. We're just focused. Well, well, no, it's not even like, let's get even more granular. We're focused on the thing in front of us. And that thing may change from click to click to click, but it is fully keeping us there. And so now let's say we put the phone away. Now we're back to this kind of monk scenario where now we don't have anything in front of us that's pulling us in, but it could be that disturbing thought. It could be that worry. It could be that concern. So The fact that the attention system can get looped and stuck on things over and over and over again and get yanked around repeatedly is not going to go away with or without the technology present in some sense. And so both may be highly focused states, dysfunctional in some sense, but rapidly shifting focus, or both may be entirely focused states that are sustainable. So I would say we don't know. We don't know. It all depends. And there's no guarantee that not having a phone in front of us means we're more focused just as having a phone in front of us means that we will be less focused.
0: I thought it was really interesting how you framed focus in general. I think before I read your book, I really thought of it as like a tool for productivity, like focus makes you good at work. But for you, it seems like focus is a key to living your fullest, richest, happiest life almost. Can you kind of speak to what you view focus as actually the function of focus being?
1: Well, first of all, I would say it's not really focus. That's the key to living a full and fulfilling life. It's attention. Mm. And attention is more than focus. So focus is just one way that the attention system works. And I definitely think that it, it is a key to both our productivity and our well-being. Because in some sense, what we focus on becomes, like I said, it recalibrates the way the brain functions based on the content. If I am keeping my flashlight on a very negative news story, that is my experience in that moment. Mm. And if I'm focusing on watching puppies run around and play with each other, that is what will infuse my mind in that moment. It's focus is going to impact our moment to moment mood. It's going to impact our ability to think. And it's going to actually impact our ability to connect with other people. Because in some sense, that flashlight, we can obviously shine it on things in our environment. We shine it on other people and we shine it on their words and the interactions we have with them. And so, It's necessary for every single thing that we do. And that's just one aspect of attention, which is this narrowing constraining. When we talk about the other systems of attention, they too add to our direct experience in life and can have sort of beneficial or costly effects on our well being.
0: Okay, so what are some of those other systems of attention? Yeah, the first one that we talked
1: about, which is this flashlight metaphor, really narrowing in, privileging some content over other contents. But in general, the system of attention is all about Prioritizing some information over other information. One way we can prioritize is based on what that information is. I'm looking at your lovely face right now. Everything else is sort of fading away. My flashlight is on you. That's what matters. But another way that we can privilege certain information over other information is not based on the content, but the time. So right now, I'm privileging right now what's occurring right now. And it doesn't matter what it is that's happening right now, but it's what's occurring in the moment. So this is the brain system called the alerting system. So, if we think of even that word alert, it's like we're present to what is happening in this moment. So, the way we use the system, for example, is like you're driving down the road and you see construction signs, right? Or flashing lights that say construction coming up. Typically, what that does is it activates the system. Stay alert. I don't know what's going to be coming up here, but I better be cautious because I may need to make a strange turn or watch for construction equipment or people walking in the road. Something weird is going to happen potentially, and I have to be ready for it. It's almost the exact opposite of that flashlight, because it's not about narrowing and constraining, it's being broad and receptive and being broad and receptive in this moment in the now. I think that gives you a sense of like how different it is and how useful that could be as well. And another way we actually use that term, pay attention. So that one, that system, sometimes I'll use the the metaphor of a floodlight. It's like, you know, I have a floodlight above my garage. It's a motion sensitive floodlight. So anything moves in its path and boom. It's going to illuminate the region. And that's sort of the way the mind works when it comes to alerting right now, broad, receptive, whatever's occurring in this moment. And then there's a, a third way. So the flashlight, the floodlight, and then the third way is not prioritizing like the flashlight does based on content or the floodlight does. And this alerting system does based on time, the now, but the third way that we can prioritize some information over other information is tied to our goals. What is important to us What matters? This third system called executive control, and you know that term executive is a cool term because it's like the executive of a company, but it's a function that exists in our own mind. The executive's job is to ensure that the goals that we have, or a particular goal in that moment, and the actions that we engage in are aligned. And the executive's job, just like the executive of a company, is not to go in and do every single thing, but to really oversee, to manage, to monitor goals and behavior are aligned and of course correct if there's a mismatch. So either you have to change your action so it matches the goal, or you may have to update your goal because the environment or the circumstances require it. So the metaphor I like to use for this one, I think it's always helpful to kind of have like a little image of what these things are. Flashlight is narrow, floodlight is broad, and this Third system is what I call the juggler. Essentially, it's keeping all those balls in the air, making sure everything that's supposed to happen, you know, you can think of each ball as a task or a goal and you're managing all of it to make sure the behavior and the goal align and none of the balls drop.
0: Do you work on each of them? Let's say you're like, I want to improve how I use my attention generally. Would you work on each of those three categories in a different way or would sort of a general focus, attention, exercise work across the board?
1: Because these systems constantly hold hands with each other, they kind of pass the baton from one to the other. And they're in the brain, what we call mutually antagonistic, meaning they're constantly battling each other too. In some sense, executive control guides the other two systems, the floodlight and the flashlight. But overall, they're kind of battling each other. So for example, if you think of the last time you were doing something really focused and you were into it, you were really focused, steady. It could be you were reading a book or you were really generating ideas, but you were fully internal and focused on this content. And somebody walked into the room and started talking to you. Mm. You'd probably be like, what? you probably wouldn't even hear them first. And then yeah. they'll probably be like, hello, are you listening? And then that kind of- tw- yeah, I get in trouble with my husband for same, that all the time. Same here, husband, <laughs> children. Um, exactly. So you, you know that experience and what is happening then? Well, the flashlight was doing great. It was activated. Executive control said, yes, stay on this goal. Keep it going. And what that did is it essentially dialed down the functioning of the floodlight. So that broad receptivity is sort of dialed down And so it takes a moment to kind of activate that system, to bring an input from your environmental surroundings. So in some sense, I would say, yes, you can try to do practices that might anchor on each of them. And for example, in my book, I do talk about practices that might privilege each of them. But the best thing to do is to try to make sure that whatever you're doing acknowledges each of them Mm. and allows you to use those in your kind of regular day-to-day life in a manner that supports what you're trying to do. And to be aware of like, right now, I'm too broad, I need to get more focused, or I'm too narrow Mm. right now, I need to be broader, or let's question the goal that I'm holding, maybe it needs to be updated, maybe it's wholly wrong. Maybe the story that created the goal is wrong. So that's part of the reason I want everybody to know about these systems, because it's just like now your toolkit is greater. It's like, oh, I know the brain has these different modes of being. And I can now with that awareness, Uh, be able to see how I'm using them. And maybe I'm, I'm using the wrong system and maybe I can switch over to using this system. So the common theme across all of the systems is something I just said, which is awareness of what is going on moment by moment. And that sort of overlays what's going on with each of the systems themselves. So there are ways in which you can train our mind that benefit all three. And then there are ways you can go in and train each of them separately.
0: Okay. Can we start by maybe some of the ways that benefit all three? If I just came to you and I said, I want to improve how I'm using my attention. Is there one thing that you would start me off with?
1: Well, I would say even before I would give you a set of practices, the first thing I would say is like, okay, this is a great, this is great. You know, we'd want to find out what the pain points are. What is making you say, I want to improve my attention? What is happening in your life that makes you say that? And a lot of times it'll be like, I just can't, I keep getting pulled by my phone. I just feel like I, my thoughts are just flying away from my mind. I just don't, I feel so distractible, right? Mm. So I would say the first step that is part of a broader umbrella of improving our attention is to pay attention to it. And it sounds a little bit like I'm copping out of giving you a real answer, but it's true. Let's just do an inventory. How are we using our attention? Where is it most of the time? Let's just kind of take a look at it. And then notice like, oh, wow, when a text message comes in, no matter what I'm doing, I always pick up the phone. Do I need to do that? Or even when I'm on my phone, I notice that I'm not even staying on the app. I'm like hyper clicking to all these different things. So just taking an inventory of what's going on to try to get a sense of what the pain points are in your particular ways, not even pain points, just how are you using your attention right now? And then I would say, let's actually engage in brain training to improve all three. And part of that means toning in on how to actually even be able to pay better attention to our attention. And what we came to in my lab, I'll just kind of foreshadow this, is we tried a lot of different things. We didn't know. You know, the notion that you could train your brain to improve your attention is a pretty new idea. The notion that the brain can change something called neuroplasticity in a direction that's beneficial not just protecting us or recovering from some kind of illness like stroke or injury, but if we're healthy to improve beyond that, it's a pretty new notion. And then there's a big question mark of what do you actually want people to do that could improve attention in a way that we can track through brain imaging, for example, and through taking assessments of their attention. And we tried many different things in my lab. We tried sort of technological solutions, light and sound devices, we tried mood manipulations. We tried what would classically be called brain training games. None of it was really great at consistently improving attention. And one of the things that we saw was that it might improve it. So you'd play a brain training game, like some kind of game where you have to remember information or a version of Tetris or something like that. And people get better and better at the game. So for sure there's something going on. But now you give them a different kind of same notion of a brain training game, but different look and feel. They fall apart again. So the brain just kind of gets better at that one thing, but it doesn't have what we call generalizability. So something that will carry over now, where I trained in improving my attention, and now I'm better at listening to my spouse, or I'm able to write that work email without getting distracted. They wouldn't carry over into new contexts. And the only thing we found that was effective at having generalizable benefits, which surprised me, and it was not something I was going and thinking we would find, was mindfulness meditation training. And that was the only form of mental training where we saw not only was it protective across multiple different kinds of tasks and situations, but it could protect against vulnerabilities and attention that come from demanding high-stress circumstances. So that's what we've been pursuing. And so ultimately, if you came to me and asked me that, I would probably set you on a path to have you learn a series of mindfulness training.
0: You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. Money was such a source of anxiety for me for a long time. I'm always talking about building good, healthy habits, but I didn't have any when it came to financial wellness. Once I started getting educated about my money, I began to feel empowered about it, and pretty soon I was like, how did I let this cause me so much anxiety for so long? If you are struggling just like I was, you need to check out YNAB. YNAB is an app that teaches a set of simple money habits to help you spend, save, and give without guilt or second-guessing. It's one of the apps that experts I talk to recommend over and over because it's grounded in techniques that you won't see anywhere else that actually work. You start off by learning four simple core habits that are actually genius and have completely changed the way that I think about money. And then it guides you through saving so you are never caught off guard by a surprise expense again so you feel safe and secure with money. But maybe more importantly, it also helps you fit the things that you love into your spending plan so that you know you have the money for that bachelorette party or that weekend getaway that you've been dreaming of. Also, and I love this, you can add up to six users to one account. So if you manage money as roommates or with your partner, it has got you covered. It has incredibly high ratings on all platforms and has become a huge cult hit because it's helped millions of people actually build the financial life of their dreams, even people who truly thought it was impossible. Check out YNAB and learn the habits with a one-month free trial, no credit card required at www.ynab.com slash Liz You'll get a month completely free and be able to see for yourself what a big difference it makes. I promise you're going to get back way more than you spend. That's www.ynab.com slash Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens maybe five years ago because I was traveling a lot and I wanted an alternative to green smoothies when I was on the go. I actually don't think that I've taken a trip without it since because it makes such a difference with travel constipation. I went from having constant gut problems on trips to being able to poop regularly and also still feeling energized even though when I travel I'm usually mainlining croissants like five times a day. The energy element is the main reason I started to bring it into my daily life. As I'm sure you're very sick of hearing me say, I don't drink coffee or any type of caffeinated tea in the morning. It just messes with my anxiety too much and it makes me feel jittery and then crashy later. Now, when I feel sluggish in the morning, I mix a scoop of AG1 into water and chug it down. It's honestly like instant energy. And unlike caffeine, it's real energy that comes from flooding your body with nutrients, not stealing from your adrenals. So there's no jitters, no crash, nothing. Just this feeling of like vim and vigor and being ready to take on the day. AG1 has 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that were specifically selected to support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. And maybe even more importantly, they actually use clinically researched amounts of everything they include. So you're actually getting the studied benefits. I checked on that because a lot of times, even if it actually says something on the package, it's like such a tiny pinch that it's basically just marketing. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. And they're third-party tested, which is always so important to look for. I know you're going to ask how it tastes, and I'm going to be honest, I actually love it. It tastes a little sweet, a little grassy, and really bright and fresh. I'd say it's like a really good green juice. I've also come to crave the flavor simply because I associate it with making me feel so good. I've basically Pavloved myself. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash healthier together. I love the travel packs. I keep on with me at pretty much all times, and the vitamin D3 and K2 is amazing. You actually want to make sure that you look for K2 with your D3 because the K2 helps the D transport calcium to your bones where it's needed rather than calcifying in your arteries. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash healthier together to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now let's get back to the episode. So, is mindfulness meditation different than other forms of meditation? I know that meditation has, there's so many different types that are kind of floating around that people are trying out. Is there a most effective type in terms of brain training?
1: Let me just, okay, so I think it's a great question. What is mindfulness meditation? We do hear this term a lot, right? A meditation and even mindfulness. So, the way that I think about it is think of meditation as the umbrella term, like the word sports, right? So, when I say sports, you're like, okay, I think I understand what that means, but really it's not, are you talking about gymnastics? Or are you talking mm-hmm. about printing? Or are you talking about bodybuilding? Or are you talking about golf, right? So the specifics do matter. But that's what these two terms are. They're an umbrella broader category. And then we could think the parallel to different sports as different forms of meditation. And the way that I define the term meditation is pretty much like from a brain training perspective. So engaging in specific mental practices to cultivate specific mental qualities. Of course, this term comes from the world's wisdom traditions, and the world's wisdom traditions had lots of specific ways that you would do stuff to get a certain result. For example, you would practice certain kinds of you know, focusing on the suffering of other people and having a concern to alleviate that suffering. That would be called compassion meditation. Mm-hmm. And so the practices would have you do certain things, and the result, the mental quality would be, I'm more compassionate. Or you could have something like transcendental meditation. I'm going to repeat these phrases and connect with something larger than the self. I'm going to have a transcendent quality that will be cultivated in my mind. For mindfulness meditation, it has to do with cultivating present-centered, non-judgmental awareness. So that's a kind of a mouthful. So just really what we're talking about with mindfulness is paying attention. That's why I'm, as an attention researcher, excited about it, paying attention to our present moment experience, being in the here and the now without a story about it or without editorializing about it we're not on the sidelines explaining what's going on we're actually in the moment experiencing what is happening without any kind of story overlaid on it or even re- emotional reactivity sometimes i talk about it as like you're getting the raw data of the moment as moment to moment conscious experience transpires so just like there's specific things you do to become more compassionate or more self-transcendent there's specific things you can do to have more present centered non elaborated attention. And that's what the suite of practices that are part of what we're doing in my lab and a lot of other labs now are exploring is what are the consequences of doing that in terms of what's better or worse? You know, now you can already see like what's better to be a gymnast or a golfer depends on what you want to do. Right. Mm. So in some sense, there's no better. It's just a matter of what qualities you want to cultivate and For the pain points of attention that we've been talking about, that sense of distractibility, feeling like your moments go by and you have no idea what's occurred, or not having ownership or agency with regard to your own mind, mindfulness seems to a pretty good way to go because we are getting more to our present-centered experience and becoming more aware of what is happening in our mind moment by moment. It's it's a great way to, as I said at the outset, pay attention to your attention.
0: Do you do a mindfulness meditation and like a compassion and what's your practice look like?
1: I like to have options. What I typically do because I'm a researcher and we are constantly doing research studies is just as solidarity with our participants. Mm -hmm. I'll call it kind of follow wherever they are in the sequence. So in our programs, and this is in the book as well, I have a series of practices that are offered and there are four main ones. And uh, you were asking me earlier, like, are there specific things you can do for each system? And like I said, yes. So we've got something practice that I call the find your flashlight practice, which is essentially figuring out where that flashlight of attention is, and then being practicing willfully directing it. And then we've got another one that's about being open and receptive, uh, one that has to do with being more loving, having more loving kindness, having more of the intentionality of beneficial effects, which touches more on that compassionate side. I will do what, in terms of my own prescription, I'll do whatever the sequence is happening in the lab with various participants. But all of them are beneficial, and that's why we've included them in our training programs and in the research studies we do. And that's why I included them in the book as well, because it's sort of like you'd never want to only have arm day and skip leg day, right? I mean, in some sense, you want to have the balanced wholeness of wellness and cultivate different aspects of your attention because all of them are going to be important
0: at some level. Do you think that we need to kind of sit down and do a practice of mindfulness to reap these benefits? Or is it the kind of thing where I can mindfully wash my dishes and be really present as I'm doing that or mindfully go for a walk and mindfully brush my teeth?
1: Yeah, I love that question. I think it's such a great question because it's like, in some sense, if I could integrate it within my activities, it's a twofer. I get the dishes done and I've already had my (laughs) mindfulness practice. So I always encourage people to do that. In some sense, taking that mindful approach has so many beneficial effects. You're not raging against the fact that you got to do all these dirty dishes. That's very beneficial because you're not approaching this task with a negative mood in mind. You're neutral, you're paying attention to the sensations, the soapiness, the feel of the water. You could do this, you know, it, like you said, almost any activity you can do mindfully. And in fact, the whole reason we want to practice mindful meditation is because we want to live our lives mindfully in some sense. We want to have access to our own minds in that way. But I would say there is a benefit to practicing with what we call like a stillness approach. So without anything else going on. And the reason to do that is because it's almost like in some sense, we really have to face the content that gets generated in the mind. If you're sitting and following the breath, it's pretty, pretty, quote unquote, boring. I mean. And we're not doing it to become Olympic level breath followers. Nobody cares if we can follow the breath. It will never be useful in my life if I can follow the inhale and exhale in any other context. But when I do that, and because the nature of this particular target for my attention is relatively like not that intrinsically interesting. Of course, if you can't breathe, that's when the breath becomes super interesting. But whatever mental content gets generated or other experiences that get generated, are such good way to kind of have, I would say it's like um, endurance training because there is no feel of the water or the soapy bubbles. There's just you, your breath, your mind. And so you will develop a type of, I mean, in some sense, I would, and I, and I felt this completely myself when I started practicing. I'm like, if I can deal with the, pardon my French, asshole that I am to myself and I can tolerate it, I can probably tolerate a lot because unlike in terms of the actual utility. When you notice that disturbing thought or that self-punitive view of yourself or judgmental uh, thing you might have all arising in the bubblings of the mind, you've got to take a look at that. You might notice that it comes back over and over again and you have to move on to the next moment. So now if I'm, you know, a lot of times I'll get asked like, can I just include my mindfulness practice in my run? Because then I'll just pay attention and I'll, uh, while I'm running go for it, do it. But just remember the next time you're in a very difficult conversation or you're very sad or disturbed in some way, Mm. going for a run may not be an option for you, especially like in the context of a conversation or a heated discussion, right? There's something happening right now. You've got to be fully here right now. You cannot go somewhere else. You cannot do anything other than fully be here and you want full access to your attention. So practicing that alone can be so helpful because I can tolerate distress that's generated in my own mind. And yes, distress is here. This is troubling. This is a difficult situation and I'm here for it. Mm.
0: Although some of the ones it sounds like that you talk about in the book are actually very conducive to being kind of like habit stacked. I know you talked about doing a body scan in the shower, which I love because I I just feel like we have such a limited amount of time in the day. So anything that really naturally fits on top of something we're already doing is really nice. Is that true? Or are there ones that kind of lend themselves more to doubling up? For sure. And I would say double up as often as you can. Why not? We're busy people. Okay, But, when you,
1: but note that there is a value to doing the stillness practices as well. That's all I'm saying. And yeah, there could be weeks where there's just no, I have not, I do not have 12 extra minutes, but I'm taking a shower every day. Might as well get it in. There's, you know, it's like, we want to be very practical about these things, not rigid and self-punitive. Like we didn't get it done. You know, we should just be mad at ourselves. No, that's totally counter. But when you can know that it will help multiple folds if you are able to get that time in.
0: Can you just briefly talk through? So everybody listening isn't like, wait, what is the body scan of the shower? Can you talk about what that would look like or what that would be?
1: Yes. Let's just say talk about it in the shower. Let's just talk about like a body scan practice, right? That you could do as a, as when you're anywhere, you could do it. I recommend it just if you're doing it as sort of this stillness perspective when nothing else is going on, you're just going to find a quiet, comfortable location where you can, you know, I would even suggest people get on the ground, get your body flat on the ground. You can do it that way. Often I'll do it with people just seated. And what you're doing is you're taking that flashlight of your attention and uh, essentially guiding it through The entirety of your body. So we could start, we have, we're sitting in a comfortable posture. The intention for this body scan is to pay attention to body sensations that arise in the different parts of the body that we are attending to in that moment. And we uh, do the same thing we would do with other kinds of focused attention practices. When the mind wanders away from those bodily sensations to some other thought or an itch somewhere else or a loud sound or whatever it is, notice that your mind is wandered away and gently bring it back. So often the way I'll guide it, it all depends on time. You can do a body scan that could take 45 minutes to an hour where you start with the big toe, then you move toward each individual toe on your foot all the way up to the ankle. And you, you can get very granular, but think of it as really taking that flashlight and shining it and then really hanging out and noticing the arising of body sensations in those in that particular spot as you scan through the entire body. And that you could do this like you were saying earlier, you could do this while you're in the shower. You could do it while you're in the shower and it and soaping up different parts of the body. So you can do it whatever way you want. And I'd encourage people to get creative about it. But part of the reason we do it with nothing else going on is that you really then have to pay attention to that what's going on in that particular body part. And you might even notice some very cool and interesting or sometimes even surprising and maybe not that great <laughs> news for yourself. Like You know, I just (laughs) had that thought, that worry about something. And I noticed all of a sudden my stomach is tense or God, I'm clenching my jaw. And, you know, and so you start noticing Mm. this relationship between body sensations and different mental states. And then now you've got a lot of information because now if you're in the middle of doing something else or middle of a conversation, you realize, Ooh, chest is getting a little tight. Oh, I can't, Mm. you know, what's going on here? Oh, that typically feel that when there's a lot of anxiety and you just little self self-caring moment of like yeah you're feeling anxious right now and and just understanding more of what's going on in you moment by moment can be very helpful because the body's giving you information that typically we just ignore or power through
0: i also think it's interesting the way that you described it because it's so non-judgmental i think a lot of people when they meditate or when they're mindful they feel that if their attention drifts they've done it wrong and it seems like for you the way you describe it, it's like, yeah, your attention's going to drift and you notice it and you bring it back. And like, that is the practice. The practice isn't just trying to narrowly be in the whole time.
1: Yeah, and I would say it's not just me. It's the misunderstanding of the nature of the mind. I mean, the, under- the to think that your mind is capable of just putting that flashlight in and never moving is wrong. It just I we've found zero instances where where that can happen in in laboratory settings and in real life. The mind is designed to be distractible. It was advantageous for us. Again, our evolutionary inheritance is to have a mind that scans, that moves, and moves to the past and the future. And so, don't fight that, or don't have a wrong expectation that that's not going to occur. Accept it. Wandering mind is the mind's nature. So knowing that now when my mind drifts away, instead of beating myself up, which is just make it drift away for longer, I can just say, ah, success. I noticed it was wandering away. Mm. I can now, now that I know where it is, I can bring it back. If I didn't know I was wandering, I would have never been able to bring it back.
0: It's such a different notion of what success in a mindfulness practice looks like. And I really like redefining it that way because it makes it so much more accessible and just so much like less self-berating, you know?
1: Oh, yeah. Why would we want to
0: take 12 minutes a day to yell at ourselves? Okay. So you just (laughs) mentioned 12 minutes a day and your book says you can reach peak mind in just 12 minutes a day. Is 12 minutes a day, we're very interested in like minimum viable dose. We only have so much time in our lives. Is 12 minutes a day of the actual sitting in stillness where you guys started to see the best results in your research?
1: Yeah. And I'll just start by saying we asked them to do a, a lot more. You know, In most research studies that are offering mindfulness programs, 45 minutes a day. Work with active, it is. I'm like, I don't know many people that are what they would, you know, self-describe busy professionals that could do that. In our work with pre-deployment military service members, we asked them to do 30 minutes a day. We're like, they're busy people. Let's just ask them to do 30 minutes. Very few people did 30 minutes a day. But because it was a research study, I could say, well, look, we asked you to do 30 minutes. Let's just be honest. What did you actually do? Because we give them these guided practices and they could stop it and walk away whenever they wanted, right? They didn't have to keep listening or they can have a play and still walk away. So we said, be honest. And and we noticed that, well, first of all, the more people practiced, and by the way, it's not just one 12 minute shot a day. It's daily, meaning you're doing it over multiple, multiple days. About a month is when we start seeing benefits. But when they practiced more daily, they benefited more, just like physical activity, right? And we know that if you're going to do in te- an intensive uh, cardio workout, the more you do, the more you benefit. Obviously, there's upper limits where you might be injuring yourself. We're nowhere no near that with mindfulness, asking them to do 30 minutes a day. But the more they did closer to the 30 minutes a day, the more they did. But then my question was, like you said, a very reasonable one, which is like, okay, but what's the least they can do and still see benefits? And that number looked like about 12 minutes a day. They We started seeing that they're benefiting. So in subsequent studies, we didn't even ask them to do 30 minutes. We just said, we're going to give you a 12-minute recording just follow that. And we noticed many more people were willing to comply. We asked them to do it every single day of the week and many did not. And so then we said, well, how many days a week should you do this 12 minutes? And we noticed it was about three to five days a week. So now we say 12 to 15 minutes a day, three to five days a week. And that's a prescription that if you follow for this four week interval, we will typically see beneficial effects in attention and stress protective effects in attention. And that's, I think both are very important.
0: What was on the recording that you gave them in this study?
1: Very similar to what I was describing to you. You'd have like a focused attention, breath awareness practice, you have a body scan, something we called open monitoring, and then loving kindness. So in in my book, I just have all the words, but actually we're developing an app right now to have a compendium to what's in the book, but just guided practice, guiding people along so they can listen to the actual practices.
0: So you mentioned stress reduction, and then we've talked a lot about kind of like being able to be more conscious of where your attention is going. Just because I think we've all heard that we should be doing mindfulness practices, that we should meditate. I think the more benefits that we can speak to, the better, because it's still just a hard hurdle for people to overcome. So if you say, if you do 12 minutes a day, three to five times a week, in the most simple terms, what are the benefits that we will be experiencing from that?
1: What we've seen over and over again are things like improvements in attention. So you're able to keep your flashlight focused where you want it to be. You're more aware of mind-wandering. You catch it. You mind-wander less so that, you know, you're just not spending as much time. And now this is in people's like real lives, not while they're practicing, just in their regular lives. Also things like improvement in positive mood, more experience of positive mood, a reduction in negative mood, less perceived stress. But really, when we think about the world of mindfulness training, there are benefits in almost every domain of what we call the human dimension. So we see benefits in the body, reduction in, for example, the experience of chronic pain or reduction in cardiovascular symptoms, growing of what's called telomeres, the end caps of your chromosomes that determine your life expectancy. So the longer the telomere, the longer your life. We see that more practice can increase the telomere. So lots of benefits for the body. Benefits of the mind I already described, it could be cognitive benefits like improvements in attention, improvements in mood, brain changes that look like a healthier brain. Mm. So we've got body-mind relationships is another feature. The ability to have uh, better teams, team cohesion, better interpersonal relationships, better marital relationships, family dynamics, workplace relationships, and then performance, academic achievement, medical errors, and medical professionals. For our work with the military, we find that even their ability to do what are called shoot, no shoot drills. So like shooting at the right target and not shooting at the wrong target, which as you can imagine is is of huge interest to a lot of people in policing. So this is like the scope of what this field of mindfulness research is now finding. And it makes you think, oh, wow, if I was going to spend 12 minutes doing something and I'm going to get like multiple benefits, this might be a decent thing to do. And really it hinges on because all of these things, our ability to perform, you know, let's just, our ability to, to attend to the body, to think, feel, connect, and our ability to perform in the world are all infused by our attention. So being able to do that fundamental set of things better, the flashlight, the floodlight, the juggler feeds or fuels improvements in all these different domains.
0: You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. When Zach and I started Healthy ConvoCo, we needed to find the easiest way to get conversation cards from our warehouse onto our website and into your hands. I thought it was going to be the hardest part of starting a business, but it wound up being one of the easiest because we just used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling gorgeous ceramics to sip morning tea from or beautiful journals to write prompts from the we're all in this together deck in, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. I know as a consumer, I'm way more likely to buy when a website has Shopify. It has all of my information saved, so checkout becomes a one-click situation even on small business sites, which makes me so happy because I love shopping small. But it's not just small. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothies, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash LizM, all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash LizM now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash LizM. Using protein in green smoothies is key. Protein is the most satiating macronutrient, so making sure there's a good amount of protein in your smoothies is the best way to avoid that mid morning crash and make sure that you are full and happy through lunchtime. I've tried pretty much every protein powder on the market, and there are only a few that I like enough to keep stocked in my kitchen to use in all of my green smoothies, and I am so excited to introduce you to one of them today. Meat Clean Lean Protein by New Zest. New Zest is made from European golden peas and extracted using this awesome, patented, chemical-free technique that ensures the texture is super smooth and not gritty or gross like so many protein powders, and is easy on the stomach because it also takes care of the digestive irritants. It's regularly tested for gluten, soy, dairy, heavy metals, and pesticides. You can rest assured that what you are enjoying is safe. And it's got a 98% digestibility rating, which means it's gentle on your gut and the protein on the label is actually being absorbed and assimilated by your body. Unlike most protein powders, they don't use any gums, emulsifiers, or stabilizers, which hugely helps with flavor and makes sure that there is nothing in there that can irritate your gut. Currently, I am obsessed with their digestive support line. They have a probiotic vanilla and a probiotic cacao. The vanilla gets its flavor from organic vanilla beans and is lightly sweetened with just a touch of organic coconut sugar. The cacao has just organic coconut sugar and cacao powder, and they both have probiotics and L-glutamine, which is one of my favorite gut health supplements. NuZest is one of the only brands I've found that actually tastes good in my daily green smoothies, and I'm a huge believer in not suffering through anything that It's not enjoyable in the name of health. It makes my gut feel good and it helps my blood sugar stay super stable so that I can be energized and ready for my day. Basically, if you are looking for a protein that has everything you want and nothing you don't, NuZest will be your new go-to. And of course, I've got an amazing deal for you. Head to newsest.us/liz and use code lizm for 20% off your order. Again, that's newsest zes z e s t.us/liz and the code is lizm for 20% off your order. I cannot wait for you to try this protein powder. I know that you are going to be as obsessed as I am. Now, let's get back to the episode. And I'm curious, a lot of what we're talking about is putting your focus where you want it to go. Is it the same process when you want to take your focus off something? So rather than putting your focus on something, I'm thinking about when I'm on a plane, I'm afraid of flying. And all I can think about is like the plane crashing, the plane crashing, the plane crashing. Would I be using the same or people who are stuck to the news and just reading negative news over and over and over? Is the same process going to help us remove our focus from those things that are so sticky and so pervasive and can kind of like get a foothold in our brain? Yeah, yeah. Great. You're
1: asking such wonderful questions. I really appreciate it. So, you can try an approach where you're going to, you know, the flashlight's over here and you're going to like pull it away and put it on this other thing. But good luck because if it's a very strong and potent distractor, uh, it's going to go right back. And there is this kind of uh, thing called sort of the white bear phenomenon. So, if I say, don't think about a white bear, don't think about a white bear, Liz. Don't think about a white bear. The one thing I don't want you to think about, white bear. What are you going to th- <laughs> think? Yes, I know, a white bear. A white yeah. bear. So it's that sort of thing. There's this, this very counterintuitive thing that occurs that the thing you're trying to not attend to actually becomes the focus of your attention in your effort to not pay attention to it. So I would say, in that case, when you've got very potent distractors, Uh, trying to put your attention somewhere else is not going to be the best thing you can do. But there are some things you can do that really still involve using your attention. What I would suggest doing when you have that same, like whether it's the uh, flying or some thought that's other thought that's very sticky, I would say you can zoom out or you can zoom into the body. So let's talk about the zooming out. The zooming out is where essentially you're going to use the floodlight now. So the flashlight's doing its thing and it's got a grip on you, but you're like, ah, I'm stuck. I'm stuck on this thought, right? So you have that awareness, boom, awareness. Now what you're going to do is going to say, I'm going to get into what we call a decentering mode. I'm going to actually zoom out. I'm going to mm. visualize myself as being in a traffic helicopter above me sitting in this room and I'm going to report what's going on. And I'm going to use the third person. And I'm going to be very granular about the report. But I'm going to try to do it not by making more stories up about it, just reporting what I'm seeing. Ah, right now, you know, Amisha's feeling nervous about flying. Amisha's having that thought over and over again, an anxious thought. She's feeling tension in her, uh, compression in her chest. She's feeling her jaw clench. So what is happening in that moment? In some sense, because attention cannot be in two places at once, you have sort of allowed the flashlight to weaken. Because you can't be fully immersed in the experience of anxiety about flying when you are actually also over here watching what's going on. Mm. And the way that you're orienting to the experience is what we would call a psychologically distanced perspective. So you're watching it instead of experiencing it and using concepts that are continuing to grow that. So that's a really handy thing to do. And what we notice is that people will say, as they're continuing to do this sort of, I like, you know, this traffic reporter kind of thing is that the experience changes. Oh, her te- her chest is now not as tighter. Sh- we notice that it can dissipate because we're pulling ourselves away instead of continuing to feed the direct experience. So that's the zooming out. The zooming in is to say, ah, I'm gripped. I'm stuck. I'm going to check in with my body right now. And I'm going to report to myself what's going on. I practice the body scan. I know how to check out what's going in the body. You might do that, like just sit for a moment and think, what is the what is what is the most prominent physical sensation I have right now and really try to watch what's going on? And they're like, oh, yeah, I can definitely feel it in my chest, my back, my feet feel kind of tingly, too, like so. But. Notice that you're doing the same sort of thing. You've weakened the hold of on your flashlight because you are attending to something else, but you're doing it much more with a floodlight perspective. You're not trying to yank the flashlight somewhere else. You're broadening out. And remember, we talked about these brain systems having an antagonistic relationship. If you are broad, it is hard to be focused. So I would, I would, I'd would be curious. Give it a
0: try. Uh,
1: the next time you got to fly and just let, report back. How does it, how did it feel?
0: Yeah. I will. I have a flight in two weeks that I'm, working towards. So I will try that on the, on the plane. Can we talk about a few more sort of like real life scenarios? Absolutely. Okay. So you mentioned a big benefit of attention is better relationships. I'm curious if there's specific tools or techniques that we can use to be a better listener in the moment. Like, you know, when you're, you ask your partner, you ask somebody about their work project, and then you find yourself just kind of drifting away as they're talking through it. Is there a way we can actually be great listeners to our partners? Yeah, yeah. And in the same way we want to train our flashlight to be able to hold it, steady it,
1: notice when it's drifted away, those same processes can be used where now the target for your attention is the person that you're listening to. So you're As you're listening, you're actually noticing where you're, you're both listening. You've got the, ter- the flashlight pointed, but you're also noticing where it is. And then the moment, the micro excursion you've taken away from them, you can bring it right back. That's the really useful part of this. Again, we're not doing it so that we can just fa- pay attention to the body and notice the sensations or pay attention to the breath. We're doing it so that in our real life, we are more there for it. We are more there to listen when we want to listen. And we're more there to be receptive to what's happening around us, which is part of what leads to that sense of fulfillment and and wellness.
0: So in the moment, is it about noticing like, oh, my attention has drifted and then just keeping on bringing it back and bringing it back to the person who's talking?
1: Yeah, no, it would. My intention is to focus on this person speaking to me in this conversation. It's important to me. That's the goal executive. Which
0: is the goal part that you talked about, like getting very clear on that. Exactly. That's my goal,
1: executive control. The juggler's like, yep, now it's time to listen to this. Then the flashlight kicks in and says, keep your attention on the words being said on this individual. And then the floodlights also like, notice, have you drifted away? Come back.
0: What if on the flip side, you want to keep somebody's attention? I'm thinking either in person, are there techniques that we can draw that flashlight towards us or even in sort of like online marketing or things like that, like how do we break through?
1: Oh yeah. Those are very well, very well established. Not really something I deal with because I'm more on the side of people owning their own (laughs) own attention instead of trying to grab other people's attention. But essentially it's all the things that we find are we're vulnerable to threatening, highly salient, novel, self-related stuff. There's a reason social media apps have us put our name at the top. And when they talk to us, they say, Amishi, what are your thoughts? Like, Mm. it's grabbing us. Bright, shiny things, things that are moving. There's like so many things that are known regarding what grabs attention. And if you look at successful TED Talks or PowerPoint presentations or marketing strategies, you will see that those same features appear over and over again. And what social media has been able to do is take all of that knowledge that we've known about for decades and put it into these handy little apps that keep us hooked and keep us re-engaging over and over again. And so I would say that's not where I would say we that's a different type of learning that we could definitely use. But if we just pay attention to what grabs us, we're getting a lot of cues on what tends to grab people.
0: I also thought it was interesting That you talked about, kind of how you could use these techniques in the context of public speaking in your book, because public speaking is like one of those fears that people—it's apparently the number one fear people have. It's like higher than death, which is wild to me. I I don't love public speaking, but I'm far more afraid of death. But are there how can we harness our attention to be better at public speaking or times that we have to kind of like overcome fears and speak in front of a crowd?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that. It's essentially another type of sticky mental content, right? Notice what is the self-talk happening that is leading to the growing anxiety you have about the public speaking event. I'm not going to succeed. It's self-related and it's threat. Maybe it's threat to your reputation. It's fear about being judged. It's got all those qualities of the thing that can grip our flashlight and yank it over and over again. So in the same way that we were talking about what to do with an anxiety like the fear of flying, we can go granular and go in. Uh, where we're connecting to body sensations in the moment, or we can zoom out and uh, watch what's going on. And and I think that these kinds of grips that we can get on our mind, uh, whether it's public speaking or some other anxiety can really start dissipating a bit.
0: Is there a limited amount of attention that we have in any given day? Like, do we start with a certain amount, even with all the practices, even if with all the tricks and tips and kind of like use it up as the day goes on? it's interesting. Yes, definitely. Attention is a limited
1: capacity system. We only have so much of it. And it looks like when you, when you track people that they have less and less available to them over time. Okay. So, so for example, let's not even say the day I give you a 15 minute task you're supposed to do. So you come into the lab and I say, okay, Liz, for the next 15 minutes, stare at the screen and you're going to do this task. If I just tracked your performance, it would go down Mm. over time. And that's totally normal. It's, it wouldn't mean that there's anything wrong with your, your mind, your very healthy healthy mind, but you'd still show what's called the vigilance decrement, which many people said is attention getting tired. But it's, the story is more complex than that. So for example, what we did in one of our studies is we had people do a, ta- a demanding task, but in addition to them doing the task, we stopped them every now and then. And we said, where's your attention right now? Is it on the task or is it somewhere else? And we tracked that over time. And what we saw was that their performance got worse over time, but their mind wandering, this off-task thinking got more over time. So in some sense, we think it's probably something like we're doing some kind of calculation of like, is this worth my continued energy and effort right now? Right? We experience it as boredom. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. I think boredom is a feedback system that says, go do something else. So what may feel like fatigue is actually just a built-in mechanism that says time to invest your energy doing some other thing. And sometimes we've listened to that and sometimes we don't. It's like, yeah, I'd rather be doing something else right now, but I got to get this report written. But understanding that sometimes it means just switching out of that mode for a few minutes to come back and you don't need to have the rest of the day off. It could be take a walk, you know, 10 minutes, come back and you will feel a little bit more capable of returning to the task. So my answer is a little bit mixed where, yes, it is limited, but there is complexity regarding what's actually going on that makes us feel uh, fatigued and and bored sometimes.
0: And just to get kind of granular on what the task switching looks like in a productive way, like why is a walk good? And is there anything else that would be bad? Like If we take our task break and we go scroll on Instagram, is that worse than taking a walk to replenish that focus and energy? So, oh
1: my gosh, such a good question. Now, like, I don't know of any studies that have head to head compared uh, Instagram scrolling versus taking a walk. But here's what my hunches. When we are taking a walk, why is that the thing I, I said? I said it because in some sense, the the intention would be that when we go for a walk, we have no particular goal and we have no particular agenda. We're going to let the mind roam anywhere it wants. In some sense, we're in a floodlight mode. We're giving this flashlight a break that's been focusing in, and we're in this broad receptive stance, whatever pops up in my mind, no problem, right? And that will kind of be a different mode that the brain spends some time in. And then we come back and we can use that flashlight again, because we've kind of given that system a little bit of a break would be one way to understand it. If instead we go on Instagram, in some sense, now the flashlight's still engaged, but now it's getting pulled by whatever content that we're we're scrolling on. Even if you say, well, I'm just really not paying attention. I'm just scrolling mindlessly. Then I'd say, okay, why don't you just get up and scroll mindlessly by looking around your block instead of just having your finger move? Because if you're truly checked out and you are in a floodlight mode, you could set your phone down and be in a floodlight mode. So even to be aware that when you think that you're engaging in something to get a rest, really get that rest. And what the rest you're seeking is no task, task task-free, spontaneous mental content just coming and going with no agenda, uh, which can be extremely positive mood generating. And really, I would say, give you the experience of sort of being mentally refreshed.
0: Would that same technique work if you were trying to prepare for something you wanted to be really focused for? Like if you had a really important meeting or you had a really important conversation, would it be good to activate the floodlight mode, like take a walk for 10 minutes beforehand? Can be. Yeah, for sure. Especially if there's preoccupation about the event that's coming up. Is there anything else that you would do if you had something coming up that you just wanted to be like hyper-focused, hyper-present for that you would do to prepare right before?
1: I mean, you could, you know, this is where I would say I leave it to people to have, I like to provide the tools and let people kind of see what works best for them. For me, I would, if I have something very, very demanding to do, the, my go-to practice, and this is going to sound strange, and I don't have like specific research data on this, but I'm just telling you from my own experience, especially if it's demanding and it's consequential for me in what I want to get done and the way I look in the world in something that I want to be successful because it matters to me right? So there's that, it's that pressure and there's, con- it's consequential from my sense of success instead of, and I know I have to be focused. Let's just add that to it. I have to be focused. Instead of doing a practice where I would have to practice focusing or even broadening, my go-to is a loving kindness practice. And in some sense, what that allows us to do is really remember that we wish ourselves well, that we care for ourselves with a deep, a deep hearted connection to our well-being. And we wish it. It's like it's like sending out like, you know, like a birthday wish, but it's like, I wish you wish you safety. I wish you health. I wish you ease. I wish you peace. Whatever it is that our phrases are during a loving kindness practice, it's just such a good reminder that ultimately what I want for myself in whatever happens next is is those good things. I wish that for myself. And it does something very surprising for me. It just sort of like it just kind of makes me feel more supported even though I'm just sitting there wishing it for myself. And that sense of support, I mean, it does a couple of things, right? So I feel supported, but I'm also not engaging in all that other mental dialogue that may be undermining my, my potential for success because now I'm, I'm going in a ruminative mood about all the other times I've done this and things that have gone wrong, or they're going to really yell at me this time, or they're not going to like what I'm saying. All that stuff isn't happening, but we're attending to this other thing that is quite important and powerful for us. So I think there's multiple reasons it could be helpful, but I'm just telling you that's, that's my go-to.
0: And that's just kind of like sitting there and repeating in your head those phrases that you said. That's, that's interesting. I've never that as a tip before. And I like that. I'll try that next time I have something important coming up. Can you leave us with just maybe one more tool, maybe something that we haven't discussed yet, a homework assignment that we can all use starting today to improve our attention or focus in some way? Yeah, yeah. I and mean, I think one
1: thing I would say you can do, you know, we talked about having some formal period of time to do a stillness practice or being efficient with our time and doing a body scan while we're in the shower. But one thing we can all do because we walk around in the world and we're, we're going to encounter this is something called a stop practice. And the stop practice is a stop is an acronym. And you could do it, by the way, anytime you're stopped so stopped in a line stopped at a stop sign stopped at a stop light like we stop all the time stop waiting for an elevator when we actually are stopped it's like a cue like oh i'm stopped i can do this little stop practice not even 30 seconds to a minute quietly nobody's going to know you're doing this but it's like getting in like a micro mindfulness practice multiple times throughout your day and so the acronym is just stop like you're stopped anyway just stop like feel the energy of stopping t take a breath And that's with this sort of mindful awareness, just O, observe what's happening right now in that receptive kind of floodlight way. Observe, external environment, internal environment.
0: And then P, proceed, move on your way. I love that because I think sometimes- For me, the pull of social media happens in those interstitial moments like the waiting in line or stopped at a stoplight or just these little tiny moments where you're not going to like pick up a book or engage in something else. And I love the idea of having like a tiny practice that I can fit into those moments that's actually beneficial.
1: Yeah, yeah. You might notice that you've already have your phone in your hand as you notice that you're gonna approach, you're gonna be like, I'm gonna pull my phone out, but it's gonna be holding it. Yeah. But just remember, even just even if your phone is in your hand, you can still do the stop practice.
0: I'm a little phone zombie. I love that you're just like, you might wake up and realize that you actually have it in your hand already. And well, I like it. Yeah. I'm speaking from a lot of experience. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. you
1: know, but it doesn't mean we can't do it. Like we might even give a little giggle to ourselves, like, oh there I am doing this autopilot thing, but I can actually stop right
0: now. And again, I just just to really emphasize this point, as you've said a number of times, that doesn't mean anything is wrong with you or you're doing anything bad. That is just the way that our brain is designed to work.
1: I think that is probably one of the most important things I want people to take away. There's nothing wrong with your brain. It is designed for distractibility. All we're doing through these techniques is trying to
0: add more tools to our toolkit to help us. Amazing. Well, I'm going to talk all about your book at the beginning of the episode, but if there's anything you'd like to say in your own words or anything else that you might be working on that I might not know about, I would love for you to do that now.
1: I think the one thing I'd want to say is just that for people to kind of understand that, and this is part of like my passion is that, you know, we've known for a long time now, because there's been so much study around 300 and over 300,000 articles published on this, that we need daily physical activity to stay physically fit. Like that is known, right? We don't know that, at least it's not part of our popular cultural understanding, that we need daily mental exercise to stay psychologically well. And the work that I'm doing here and what I've tried to offer and everything we've been talking about is for people to get that understanding that the mind, just like the body, needs a daily exercise to stay fit. And we now know what we can offer people and that we can do ourselves to promote that fitness. And so what I want to offer people is that just remember that, that the culture will catch up We already know what people can do daily to help themselves. And all we need to do is give it a try. Start today.
0: All right. I'm convinced I'm going to go do my 12 minutes of mindfulness. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jha. This was amazing. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. You asked such great questions. I had a lot of fun. I hope you loved this episode with Dr. Jha. I've been like in and out of my meditation practice for years and she definitely convinced me to stick to 12 minutes a day, which is just so doable. Also, I will be using that walk outside trick to replenish my focus, especially in the middle of the afternoon when I get just like so slumpy and tired. And also I am definitely gonna try the decentralization, the reporting thing from above, from above my body and self on my next flight. I have my next flight in a little bit less than in two weeks, I will try that trick and I will let you all know how it goes. So fingers crossed for me. I really want to have a good fight. If you are, if you have flight anxiety like me, I have a how to overcome fear of flying episode, which I've personally been listening to on repeat. It's helping so much, but my fear of flying is just like, ah, oh, it's, it's so bad. It's out of control. So I need every single trick in the book. And I'm so excited to add this to my toolbox as well. If you love this episode, please send it to someone that you think would benefit. And I would also so appreciate a really quick rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. They're all such wonderful ways to support the podcast and they are so appreciated. Also, make sure that you are subscribed or following on your favorite podcast platform. And I will see you next Wednesday on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. Have a beautiful week. It takes a lot for a health supplement company to wow me, but Symbiotica really breaks the mold. If you haven't discovered them yet, they make really different products than any other supplement company I've seen before. They have a lot, so I highly recommend that you check out their website and take their quiz to find out what's best for your specific goals, but I wanted to call out a few of my personal favorites. First of all, the topical magnesium. You all know I love magnesium, and I've always wanted a topical spray that wasn't sticky, that felt good and luxurious to use and that actually let the magnesium absorb into my body, which requires DMSO as an ingredient, which I have actually never seen in any other product. If you have achy muscles or sore feet, this is literal heaven. And I also love it before bed to help with sleep. And then I have become increasingly interested in minerals. We talk a lot about vitamins, but adequate minerals are so key for energy. And unfortunately, it's become harder to get adequate minerals because our soil is so depleted of them. The Symbiotica Shilajit supplement is one of the best mineral supplements that I've found and the research around G is profound. There's robust human and animal research that shows it acts on ATP in a way that significantly helps restore and create energy, which is one of the biggest things that I love it for as a low caffeine consumer. There's also robust research around its anti-inflammatory properties, its brain protective properties, and more. I think of it more as a whole food than a supplement. It's a naturally occurring resin, and I just mix a little bit of it into my afternoon tea or my decaf coffee drinks. And like all Symbiotica products, there are no additives, fillers, toxins, or artificial flavors. Of course, I have a special discount for you. You can use code LizMoody to get 15% off plus free shipping on subscription orders. Again, that's code LizMoody for 15% off on Symbiotica.com.